Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knaxted once again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Ian Marr from the University of Minnesota, where he's a professor of dermatology and the director of dermatologic surgery. Ian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for inviting me. So I think, you know, as I was looking on PubMed to find what's new and great, both in your world and in skin cancer surgery in general, you've been incredibly prolific over the last year. And so I I know you've done a lot of work with some of the cancer databases, some of the epidemiological data that we can access through the National Cancer Center database and through the SEER registry. So because not everybody uses those to the degree that you and I may work with them, will you just give our listeners an overview of of what you think their potential is, what kind of data they're tracking, and what you think um, their real use is? All right. Well, that's a good question. Um, So the National Cancer Database is a joint project of the American College of Surgeons and the American Cancer Society. It has a very broad scope. So any ACS accredited cancer center will participate in the NCDB database. Uh, As such, it captures about 70% of all new cancer diagnoses. Now that sounds wonderful. The downside of the NCDB is it only tracks disease specific mortality for the first 90 days after the cancer diagnosis. And after that, the only real mortality outcome measure they track is all-cause mortality, not disease-specific mortality. The SEER database, on the other hand, uh, track looks mainly at academic medical centers, but it tracks all-cause mortality, disease-specific mortality, for a, for a longer period of time. So it keeps both of those endpoints uh, going out years as opposed to the NCDB, which only captures all-cause mortality after 90 days. So that's what each of those databases are. How did you get involved with them? Oh, so I, how did I get involved? So I have had the good fortune of working with some very, very talented trainees. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out to uh, Dr. Walter Lazuski, who's currently an assistant professor at Northwestern University, uh, and Addison Deemer, uh, who is uh, my current fellow here at the University of Minnesota and will hopefully be joining our faculty next year. We'll see how well this podcast ages, Tom. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, the, um, but Walter actually came in with a lot of uh, experience working with these databases. And so basically, Addison and I 
came up with questions. So the thing with any database uh, is that there are a limited number of fields that are tracked. And you can only really ask questions about the data that's reliably extracted from these patients' charts. So, you know, you can generally compare health status to whatever mortality outcome there is. Uh, you can generally compare tumor-specific factors to your outcome, your mortality-related outcome of interest. You can compare treatment setting, uh, but there are a lot of other factors that affect outcomes for patients uh, that aren't really collected. And that's one of the driving factors between behind us uh, starting the MOSE registry, which is going to track a much broader uh, range of fields that are going to be associated with our eventual outcomes of, of interest, which are going to include local recurrence, which none of these databases track. So in my mind, what databases are good for are identifying interesting questions, because there's always going to be confounders that you can't correct for in database research because they just don't, none of these databases look at a broad enough uh, range of fields for us really to correct for everything uh, that's relevant to patient care and to the outcomes of interest for those patients. I, I completely agree with you. And I think one of the values of them is that I just ran a search in the SEER database not too long ago, and you just get massive volumes, you know, and I think a lot of the the flaws when it comes to confounders sort of correct out by the simple fact that you're looking at not 800 cases, you're looking at 800,000 cases of melanoma since, you know, 1975. So it's, it's really a, a very large database, which, which can be helpful. And Yari gave the, the perfect segue into Mosaic. And we've had um, Sarah Aaron and, and others talk about Mosaic in, in the past, but how do you think Mosaic is going to be different from these um, more sort of regional and national um, registries that we may have experience working with? Right. So, I mean, the main thing for a for surgical oncology specialty like we are, Mosaic will look at local recurrence. That is you know kind of our one of our ultimate outcomes of interest and none of the national databases allow us to do that uh, the other important difference is that mosaic collects a much richer collection of background data on each of those cases which is going to make it possible for us to find relationships and find trends that will allow us to drive improvement in patient care which none of these national databases currently allow Right, right. So um, I, I think it will be really nice to see how some of the data differs and where there's um, similarities. And so today we're going to focus on your melanoma projects, not the first you've done with these databases. You just published comparison of sebaceous carcinoma in periocular versus non-periocular regions using the NCDB in the JAD. And you published the microcystic adnexal carcinoma by gender study in derm surge. But today we're going to be talking, I don't think the article's in print yet. I think it's still ahead of print, but available on PubMed. Uh, improved overall survival of melanoma of the head and neck treated with Mohs micrographic surgery versus wide local excision. Um, 
I'm not going to ask you a question. I'm just going to have you tell us about the project. Okay. All right. So I think uh, the way I'd start uh, is that Mose for melanoma has remained highly controversial despite some really excellent single center, single group data showing that it is effective in preventing local recurrence and in maintaining excellent survival for these patients. And the results shown by these single group, single centers are superior to historical data for wide local excision for head and neck melanomas. What's important to understand, I think is really highlighted very well uh, by the Bordeaux Zaituni paper that was published from the SEER data. I think a lot of the opponents of Mohs for head and neck melanoma uh, will decry the quote-unquote taking of smaller margins with Mohs as being unsafe. However, uh, when you look at the Bordeaux-Zaituni paper, you see it's about twice as likely for these patients who undergo excision of head and neck melanoma at academic medical centers to have a sub-recommended margin, which is what's labeled as narrow margin excision done for the head and neck melanoma than it is for them to have actual wide local excision. So that's a margin greater than one centimeter done for the head and neck melanoma. The studies that helped define the margins for melanomas really included a vast majority of trunk and extremity cases because surgeons did not feel comfortable randomizing head and neck melanomas. So there's actually really only a couple of dozen uh, head and neck melanomas that were included in that pivotal trial that set the melanoma margins. So really, there's not a lot of good data for those margins on the head and neck to begin with. And you add to that that in reality, most of the times when patients go for wide local excision of head and neck melanoma, they're getting something other than wide local excision. And there definitely is no evidence to suggest that that practice is either effective or safe. So what the Bordeaux-Zaituni paper showed is that there was, while there was a advantage, a slight advantage to Mohs over wide local excision on univariate analysis, that that survival advantage did not hold up on multivariate analysis. So I actually would flip that around. So what that shows, though, is that there was no survival disadvantage to Mohs surgery. There's no survival downside when looking at the SEER data. Now, what we did is we did a very similar analysis, but in the NCDB data. And what we found uh, was that when you corrected for all the confounders that were available, such as you know health status, Carlson score, you know, Breslow depth, ulceration, et cetera, et cetera, that for all head and neck melanomas, there was a slight survival advantage uh, for Mohs surgery. Now, when you break it down by the T-scores, there's only a statistically significant advantage for the MIS and the T1 melanomas. But there's no survival disadvantage for T2, T3, or T4 melanomas. 
So basically the punchline, I think, of our study is that it's another piece of evidence that shows there's really no evidence that Moses is in any way unsafe. You know, it demonstrates it's at least as safe as wide local excision for head and neck melanomas. And that really we need to query our treatment pattern of head and neck melanoma with a prospective randomized study comparing Mohs and comparing wide local excision. Excellent. That, that's a really helpful overview. Um, because you mentioned it twice, just for our listeners, uh, Bordeaux and Zatuni, uh, Derm Surge 2018, Melanoma of the Face and Mohs Micrographic Surgery, Nationwide Mortality Data Analysis, and we'll have that linked up in the show notes as well. Ian, one of the things that I always struggle with is that you, you know, we talk about local recurrences a lot in, in Mohs surgery and in what we do. And then with melanoma, we talk a lot about survival. Mm -hmm. And truly an open-ended question here where I don't know, to what degree is that survival benefit or disadvantage or however it turns out related to local control? Um, you know, I think if we think about Merkel cell carcinoma, you can agree that oftentimes how good your local control is may not even matter because the cat may be out of the bag and you may have micrometastatic disease at the time of your surgery. So for melanoma, where do you see the relationship between local primary disease control, those margins, that surgery, and your actual survival down the road? Well, yeah. So I would say that... Um... For both Merkel and melanoma, local control, early local control, is still our best uh, and really only chance to attain permanent lasting cure. Merkel, of course, is so, so aggressive that oftentimes, as you said, the cat is already out of the bag. Melanoma as a statistically less deadly tumor than a Merkel cell carcinoma. You know, local, local control is of paramount importance because we actually most of the time do have a chance to cure the cancer with our surgery. And while we do have immune checkpoint inhibitors that are now prolonging survival, and I am a big proponent of working with our colleagues in head and neck surgery and surgical oncology to get our patient the best individualized treatment. So if they need Mohs, getting Mohs, if they need uh, a sentinel lymph node with that, working with our colleagues to get the sentinel lymph node with that so that our patients can be clinical trial eligible uh, if that's something they need down the road. But you know, I, I think that local control is still our best shot at curing cancer, still our only shot at curing the cancer. Uh, because while the immunotherapy uh, has been shown now to prolong life uh, by a matter of months, uh, I don't think anybody who knows what they're talking about would sell you that you know these immunotherapeutic agents are actually curing melanoma at this point. When you look at the 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 data that we can acquire from these national registries, it's shocking that basically you're depending on what your search query is, anywhere five to ten of melanoma, uh, five to ten percent of melanomas are getting treated with Moses. That is a fair guesstimate that you would say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they're not 
they're not exactly the same as the melanomas getting wide local excisions. And there's been a couple of studies now using either SEER or NCDB. And how, how confident are we that the melanomas we're comparing are relatively similar? You've already alluded to the limitations of the databases, but when it comes yeah. to things like Breslow depth. Yep. Yeah, so I think when we compared, so in our analysis, we, you know, we controlled, we compared them in depth match group, we controlled for differences in the rate of ulceration. Um, and for, you know, similar tumors, we had better outcomes for MOS, statistically significant better outcomes for MOS with our T1 tumors. Um, now, as you said, uh, as you go up, in your T-scores, there's less and less MOs being done, more and more wide local excision being done. But thankfully, there's not nearly as many of these tumors uh, in the higher T-scores. But you know, correcting for T-score, where you know, really the tumor's behavior should be about the same, the patients survive about the same. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, that, I, that's... I think, there, I mean, yeah, I mean there, there's going to be some variability within any stage, but you know, you know, certainly within the stage, you know, the tumors should be pretty similar, should be pretty similar, especially within a T-score. Right. One of the things that's perhaps keeping some people uh, away from doing MOS for melanoma, apart from the sort of bureaucracy and, and uh, administrative challenges at academic centers, is incorporating the rest of the multidisciplinary team, especially in patients who are eligible for sentinel lymph node biopsy. Can you speak to how you would sort of see that on a national level or how you've managed that at your local institutions? Yeah, I mean, it's actually, there's a couple of ways to go about it, right? You can do sentinel lymph node before uh, MOS. You can do sentinel lymph node after MOS. My tip, what I've found uh, with my uh, colleagues at both St. Louis University and here at the University of Minnesota, is that there's a little bit of a learning curve when you're talking about doing any sort of complete peripheral and deep margin assessment surgery for melanoma. My colleagues have generally liked getting the chance to do the sentinel lymph node before we make a, you know, a big hole in someone's face because they feel like they're getting a more accurate injection site, especially for head and neck melanoma, and I understand that. But I think most people uh, who do cancer are really driven by getting the best outcomes for their patient. And you just sit down, you explain the data, and I think most people will be more understanding. And you just go about it uh, as wanting to work with your colleagues and making sure they don't feel threatened uh, or like you're trying to take their procedures away from them or deprive patients of a needed diagnostic procedure such as sentinel lymph node biopsy. Just out of curiosity, who, uh, what specialty do you end up working with most there for sentinel lymph node biopsy when you've got surgical oncology, uh, ENT, plastics at your disposal, depending on location? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when you're dealing with sentinel lymph node biopsy, there's really good evidence that uh, whoever does the most will be the best at it. So you got to look at your local center, you know, who's the provider who, who does those services. At my particular uh, you know, health center, uh, ENT does all, our, all of our head and neck stuff. 
and Sir Jonk does anything on the trunk or extremities. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, I think that's, that's fairly uh, common practice. So if, if we sort of look forward, we, we have, gosh, two decades worth of single center data supporting the use of MOS for, for invasive melanoma. We now have from you, Natalie Zatuna, Jeremy Bordeaux, and the recent uh, Jamaderm paper, plenty of data suggesting that MOS for invasive head and neck melanoma is non-inferior or potentially associated with improved survival in certain groups. What's the barrier at this point? You know, we're still hovering around a 7 to 10% utilization nationally. And maybe that's okay, but if you were sort of somebody who truly believes in this technique, what, what do you see as the next steps to, to bringing it about in the same way we've had success with basal cell and squamous cell? I think we've just got to get more um, fellowship directors being facile with this technique. I mean, I think if you look at just the penetrance of Mohs for melanoma into the training programs for micrographic dermatologic surgery, it's not 100% yet. And until it is, we're going to keep educating people who, who don't know how to do it. And that's, that's the fact of the matter. And I think we have to look at uh, finding better ways to educate people who are already out in practice. And I think technology will give us some really interesting ways of teaching the skills to interpret these slides and troubleshoot these slides. And, you know, there's now, you know, an increased commercial presence, which is making these staining protocols easier. Right, right. One of the um, things that that I find always inspiring is that you do a fair amount of things, let's say, that you probably did not learn in fellowship. Uh, Did you do most for melanoma in fellowship or no? I did, but we didn't do immunostaining. So we would go on H&E until we thought we were clear and then send a, uh, then send a, a safety margin for H&E. I like uh, having the MART-1 stain much, much better, and I like being able to reconstruct a wound that hasn't been granulating for the better part of a week. Much, much better. Right, right. I completely agree with you there. How, what makes somebody able to be open to adapting new techniques. And this is going to be a nice segue into a few minutes about eyelid reconstruction as well, which ironically is similar to Mohs for melanoma in that it's something that makes people nervous and only a fraction of uh, our listeners may be comfortable doing it at this point. So before we get into nitty gritty details of that paper of yours that I want to mention, is there anything as, as a person, as a sort of environment that fosters the desire or ability or confidence to, to go out and try new things or learn new things? Yeah. Um, you know, learning new things out of training is tough. You know, I think when we're in training, we feel like we're very busy and then you get out and you've got a real job with real responsibilities and you realize that you weren't all that busy in training and that there are actually much more demands on your time. And so adding new things to that is very difficult. And in all surgical specialties, you see the majority of people will come out of training and then do some slightly more restricted scope from what they trained with. 
And if you know someone does that, that you know, that's not abnormal and it's nothing to be ashamed of. That's what most people do. And I think what makes most people retract is that they don't want to do anything that would be harmful to their patients. And they want to be comfortable and they want to be able to sleep at night. And I think what will allow us to help people who want to grow grow is changing the way that we do medical education and finding ways to form communities for people who are out of training, who are in their office by themselves. Uh, you know, I think things like online journal clubs uh, are a great way. I think discussion boards are an amazing resource for people who participate in them. I think doing more uh, hands-on courses uh, at our meetings uh, where people can you know, have, have a proctored experience where they're shown how to do net, new techniques. I think having live demonstrations at meetings where people can actually look at step-by-step -step and ask questions of the faculty. I think those are all new things that can help uh, people who want to grow, grow, because it's scary. And, you know, I have forced myself to keep growing because that's something that, you know, I need to do for my own, not to put too fine a point on it, my own sanity uh, and mental health. But it's scary. I mean, you know, after, you know, some of my first big eyelid reconstructions, you know, I didn't sleep because I was worried about my patient, worried about if things would be okay. I think what I can tell people is if, you know, you prepare to do it, you know, I read a lot of oculoplastics textbooks and if your preparation, you know, is good, we do more sewing on skin than any other specialty. Uh, and if you know what you're doing, uh, you can, and go in with the right plan, you can execute it uh, and get great results for your patients. I, I think what you're saying there is is really important because when I look at, you, you know, a lot of people look look up to you uh, in the melanoma world, in the in the reconstructive surgery world, and it's good to hear experts acknowledge that they have fear for the first time because as somebody who's you know four to five years out from training, you're constantly battling that fear of sort of plateauing with the level of skills that you acquired in, in fellowship, however grand that plateau may be, but never progressing beyond. And I, I think what you say about um, preparation, uh, I'll be the first to admit that I've watched plenty of YouTube videos on eyelid reconstructions that I have asked to go down into the cadaver lab uh, when I was at the Cleveland Clinic and just manipulate the tissue in the way that I would during that actual reconstruction. I think there's ways to take the, the, the edge off of how scary these things can be. Yeah. Because I want to respect your time, let's just for two or three minutes talk about your, the, the paper that you and uh, Jeremy Edscorn from Penn published on the safety of periocular Mohs reconstruction. Mostly, is there a, a general approach to how you think about it? What are the main things you wish you'd known? And um, what sort of complications should I be looking for? All right. Yeah. So the 
so that paper that we did basically looked at uh, Jeremy's cases and my cases uh, over a period of, I think, four years. And when we looked at our cases and we looked at the historical data on oculoplastics reconstruction, uh, the defects that we were repairing were just about as big in the ocul as those published in the oculoplastic series. We had more full thickness defects, a greater percentage of full thickness defects. So those, you know, involving both anterior and posterior lamella of the eyelid, uh, as those in the oculoplastics literature. And we had a similar overall uh, complication rate, uh, although the vast majority of our complications were medial canthal webbing, which is not very severe, and we had no serious adverse uh, events such as blindness uh, in contradistinction uh, to the oculoplastic series. So you can do safe, excellent oculoplastic repairs under local anesthesia uh, as a Mohs surgeon. You know, it always pained me. Uh, my practice has always been to, if I get someone from oculoplastics that they biopsied, I'll clear the tumor, I'll send them back without question. And it just always pained me to see the little old lady uh, who came in NPO sitting around in the waiting room as I was leaving for lunch, waiting for her OR slot, when I knew very well that, you know, she had a six millimeter wide full thickness defect of the lid that I could repair with a lid wedge in about five minutes. And that she'd spent the entire morning hungry, uh, that she was going to have to be put under sedation and deal with the potential problems of coming out of sedation, uh, and that you know, she was going to have to endure added time and cost uh, for something that wasn't, you know, in my opinion, necessary from a medical or safety standpoint. Right. No, I, I completely agree. But there is always that, that first case where you decide to go out of your, your comfort zone. And um, I think as you progress from a sort of wedge, which is essentially your your almost linear eyelid closure to more complex things. Any memorable cases or, or things you, you wish you had known or used to do and don't do anymore or vice versa? Yeah, you know, I, I think I waited longer. So basically, you can get about, um, you can get about two-thirds of a lower lid reliably repaired in a single stage. Uh, the key to doing that is getting comfortable with cutting uh, the lateral canthal tendon, which is, you know, a procedure called, you know, canthotomy, cantholysis. And I wish I had not waited as long as I did to start getting comfortable with that procedure because it really is pretty straightforward. Um, I choose not to do uh, Hughes flaps or Cutler beard flaps. I just don't like the idea of sewing someone's eyelid shut. Uh, so I have not done one of those yet. Maybe that's my next area for growth, but that still gives me the heebie-jeebies, um, so I don't do it. So I, I would say find a level when you're comfortable. I would argue that every practicing Mohs surgeon can do a lid wedge. Uh, read about the diagonal tarsal suture, which was published by Andrea Willey and Richard Cesar. That makes these lid wedge repairs incredibly simple. Good. Yeah, no, that's helpful, and we'll certainly put that article uh, in the show notes as well. I think... I, I just remember for me cutting through that lateral canthal tendon for the first time is is sort of something where I was very grateful that I'd done it on multiple 
cadavers. So I encourage everybody who's at all considering mm-hmm. this, see if there's a a local institution with a with an anatomy lab to to explore this. Uh, seek videos online and certainly take advantage of all the professional things available yeah. at the at the Mose College and our other yeah. organizations to to get comfortable with this. Yeah. Yeah, can I put can I put in a plug for two educational resources? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so that you keep referring to videos. There's a guy at the University of Iowa who does some really great videos. So, if you Google Iowa oculoplastics videos, yep, he taught me. Yeah, yeah. He's th- those are amazing. Uh, if you're interested in a more hands-on experience, uh, we do run a course at the Practical Anatomy and Surgery Center uh, in uh, at St. Louis University. Uh, it's going to be August 28th through 30th. We've got some killer faculty from not just Mohs surgery, but plastics, facial plastics, and ocular plastics. Uh, and you get a, if you're interested in you know expanding your repertoire of repairs, it's a great place. A lot of hands-on teaching, a lot of high-quality lectures. And where can people get more information on that, Ian? Ah, yes. So Google, Google the Practical Anatomy and Surgery Center. St. Louis University uh, should get the website, um, and yeah, our course, like I said, is going to be August twenty eighth through thirtieth, and it's it, I believe titled "Advanced Flaps and Aesthetic Facial Reconstruction." Awesome. And in closing, uh, I know you've been very involved with the the sort of national uh, journal club. Uh, for people who heard you just mention that on the podcast, mm-hmm. what's the best way to, to get more information on that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, let me look up, uh, if you give me just a second, I'll look up Kira Burke's email address. Uh, and I can tell you who to email to get on our invitation list. Uh, it's generally second Tuesday of the month. And if you email kburk, K-B-U-R-K, at nm.org. You may recognize the email address as that of Murad Alam's uh, administrative assistant. Uh, Kira, Kira will get you squared away and get you on our invite list. Awesome. Well, Ian, this has been really great. Um, I appreciate you taking the time on a Friday before you head on to, to other meetings. Um, any other last comments that you want to share with our audience before we conclude? Tom, I think this is a great thing you're doing. I really appreciate you having me on and uh, you taking the time to do this for the membership of the American College of Mohs Surgery. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank our listeners for their attention as well. Uh, we mentioned a lot of articles today. They'll all be in the Mohs College Reference Library accessible through the ACMS website. Um, please continue to share podcasts with your colleague and trainees. Let us know how we're doing and uh, who else you'd like to have on the podcast by contacting me at info at Thank you, and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Most Surgery.